Would you open your Bibles with me to the Gospel according to Mark, the first chapter. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you in those uh, chair racks in front of you, you'll find the Gospel of Mark on page 836. It is one of four Gospel accounts recorded in the New Testament. And this is a book that we have begun to study as of last week, and I love being in this text. Let me encourage you as part of this, just be reading it on your own. Just immerse your heart and mind in God's truth in the course of the week. Uh, we're going to go verse by verse through this book. It's going to take a number of months. Some sections we'll probably move through a little more rapidly. Others, we may just slow it way down and take even just a verse for a Sunday. I feel a little bit of the frustration and pressure right now that we're going to actually attempt to cover more uh, of the story this morning than maybe what we should in one, uh, in one setting like this. I say that in part because there's so much packed into this, and the other three Gospels are always helpful in uh, filling out some of the things that a writer like Mark uh, was not led by the Holy Spirit to include. But having said that, we're going to go as far as we can in the time that we have this morning, and my prayer is that you would see and hear uh, the, the glorious Savior the one we've been singing about this morning. Let's, let's pause for another word of prayer as our Bibles are open. Now, Father, how thankful we are that you have not left us to ourselves to figure out what this word means. And we come this morning, depending upon you, asking that you, by your Spirit, would open our hearts, would illuminate our minds, would motivate our wills to action that we might believe all that you have recorded here and that we might act upon your truth. Spirit of God, would you lead us to those right conclusions and right action steps? We do not want to be hearers of this word only. We want to be doers as you have instructed us in your holy word. So come now, please give us help. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to begin reading this morning in verse 9. And so you follow along, please, as I read Mark 1, verses 9 through 15. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you, I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, for the sake of those of you who weren't here with us last week, and for everyone else just to kind of get us up to speed, remember that as, as Mark begins to introduce the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, he has carried us first to that specially selected messenger, John the Baptist. John came preparing the way, preparing the way according to the Old Testament prophecies, many of which were spoken hundreds of years before John the Baptist arrived. And if you go back and just review those verses preceding, John is preaching a message that calls people to repent and believe, and then he baptizes them. A public 
demonstration that these people were acknowledging their sin before God, forsaking it, and being baptized as a sign of the spiritual cleansing that they were experiencing from God. But part of John's message, if you go back to verse 8 and look at those words again, he says, I have baptized you with water, a very significant spiritual ceremony. But he, that is the one he's been telling them about, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now that's the thought that Mark wants to carry right into the next portion of the story where Jesus appears. Now notice some things with me if you will. I want to give you some big categories under which to place these thoughts, these particular verses and the truths in them. The first is that Jesus is going to appear to us as one who is uniquely anointed of the Holy Spirit. That's what the baptism is going to be about in part. The second big truth that, John, or that Mark shows us through uh, the, the life of Jesus at this particular point, he's not only anointed by the Holy Spirit, but he is affirmed, or you could even use the word approved, of God the Father, also in a unique way. Those are the two big pieces. And if you just remember those words this morning, anointing and approval, and there's going to be a third one we'll get to in a moment, that will help you to, to think through what, what Mark is putting forward in these several verses. Now, before we get to that special anointing and baptism of the Spirit, look again at verse 9. I don't want you to miss a couple of really special things here. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized. Nazareth of Galilee is an out-of-the-way place. There's nothing special about it. As a matter of fact, the Apostle John recorded in his gospel that when one of the first disciples was in the process of being called and chosen, his name is Nathaniel, and, and another disciple comes to him and says, come, come see the Christ. Well, Nathaniel's actually the one who says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, you think of the most obscure community in the valley here, the place that no one really wants to live in or be from. Well, that's Nazareth. And, and I thought about maybe offering some suggestions, but then I think God's wisdom you know, also came to me and said, you don't want to unnecessarily offend anyone who might actually live in that community. So if you feel like you come from a relatively obscure place, then you understand what Mark is saying here, and you understand the origin of Jesus the Christ. It actually is beautiful to me that he willingly lived in a place that was obscure and gladly owned it uh, as his home community. What does that tell you about the humility of Jesus? A great king you would expect to come out of the royal palace, wouldn't you? A great king in Israel you would expect to come from Jerusalem. A great king you would expect to appear in all kinds of glory and glamour, and he would want the attention. But here's Jesus arriving from Nazareth. That's a head-scratcher. It's a reminder to us that he's the humble king. Now, the second thing that appears to us in this passage that is somewhat surprising is that he's baptized. Everybody else that John the Baptist had baptized needed to be baptized as a sign of the spiritual cleansing that they had undergone, as a sign that they had repented of their sins, confessed them openly, and said, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. But Jesus had no sin. What is he being baptized for? Well, again, if you compare this account to some of the other Gospels, one of those would be Matthew. And in chapter 3 of Matthew's Gospel, verses 14 and 15, this is a, a, a really wonderful moment. 
A bit of dialogue between John the Baptist and Jesus. Jesus comes and says, I want you to baptize me. And listen to John's response. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? I mean, John is actually saying, this is not appropriate. The role should be reversed. But then Jesus says, verse 15 of Matthew 3, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Did you catch that? To fulfill all righteousness. And then Matthew says, John consented. So John did it. Now think this thing through for a minute. Jesus is not being baptized because there was some process of conviction of sin on his soul, an acknowledgement of that sin, repenting and confessing it, and then undergoing baptism as you and I might undergo baptism. No, he is doing it to fulfill the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is that Jesus would be so closely identified with sinners like you and me that no one would see him as as dwelling in a separate uh, class of, of individuals as if he would not have association with us. He fully identifies with the very people he has come to save, people that he will command in time to be baptized as a sign of the forgiveness of sins they have received through his grace. I love what Luke writes in his gospel about Jesus. We sang of it earlier, Jesus, friend of sinners, That thought comes from passages like these where Luke describes Jesus as the Son of Man and and there were those who were even accusing him of this kind of activity and this is a, a bit of a cultural indictment on him. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But you know, when you are aware of your sin... When you are painfully aware of your shortcomings, of your failings, whether they be of a spiritual nature or they be of a relational nature, whatever kind of weakness and failure that you know goes to the root of your soul, you are always happy when somebody comes alongside you and says, I'll be your friend, though you're broken. I'll be your friend, though you are a failure. I'll be your friend, though you might be rejected and despised by other people. I'll be your friend. And that's exactly what Jesus begins to demonstrate for us by his baptism. He is the friend of sinners. Is he your friend today? And by that I mean, do you have a personal relationship with him where you would say, yes, he is my friend? Yes, I've acknowledged that I'm a sinner deserving of God's condemnation and judgment, but I've asked God to forgive me for my sins and I've and I've asked Jesus to draw near as my Savior, and I know him as my friend. Well, there's more in this passage, so let's return to the text, and let's look carefully um, at, the, at the next verse, verse 10. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. That's an extraordinary moment, isn't it? Look at that little phrase, the heavens being torn open. You know, there's one other time where Mark will use this term, torn. It actually comes at the end of the story when Jesus hung on the cross and was giving his life as a great sacrifice for sin. The account is that the veil of the temple in Jerusalem was torn. 
And it revealed that in the Holy of Holies, God wasn't there, was He? Uh, The great secret was out. God wasn't there. He actually had come to earth in flesh and ultimately had come that He might take up residence in the hearts of people like you and me. That's why the Apostle Paul will later, later write in one of his letters, Do you not know that you are the temple of the Most Holy God? So it wasn't about geography or architecture any longer, was it? No. It it was about God making his dwelling in people. Well, at this particular moment, though, um, Mark uses a term that is a little startling. The heavens were torn open. Why would they be torn open? There is no doubt in my mind, in part, to fulfill one of the prayers and prophecies that was given over 700 years before. Would you go back to the Old Testament with me? And I want you to read with me, just follow along, in Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63. Again, if you're using one of our our church Bibles, you'll find this portion of Scripture on page 622. Now, this is written by Isaiah the prophet, and he lived uh, in the uh, about he was ministering in the, in the early 700s BC. It was a very difficult time. And there's a prayer that's recorded for him, and we're just going to jump in midway. Isaiah 63, verse 15. And I'm not even going to read all of it to the end of the chapter, but I want you to get a feel for what was on his heart. And so he prays for God's mercy to be demonstrated. And he says to the Lord, Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. He'll go on in verse 19 to say, We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. There's so much more here, but for the sake of time, I just want to put those two verses in place. What Isaiah is mourning and sorrowing is that he lives in the middle of a generation of people, a culture that's just totally away from God, rebellious, hard-hearted, just minds and souls darkened by their own sin. They might acknowledge God and give them a little tip of the hat, but their hearts have no significant relationship with them as a whole. Now, there's always a faithful remnant. And just like sometimes you and I start thinking we're the only ones who love God and nobody else has left on planet Earth, uh, well, take heart. God's always had his people. But Isaiah is just pouring out his heart because he knows that thousands upon thousands of the people that he has been called to uh, minister to and serve are so far from God. And so in verse 19 when he says, we've become like those whom you have never ruled. This is Israel. These are the people who had the exodus from Egypt in their history. These are the ones who saw the great miracles of God. These are the ones who saw the pillar of cloud by day as he delivered them and a pillar of fire by night. I mean, God manifested himself to them, but at this point they're like, whatever. So then, Isaiah 64 The prayer continues, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. The prayer of Isaiah continues beyond that point, but do you see the same imagery in that Old Testament prophecy as Mark is including here in chapter 1, verse 10? This is the moment where God rent the heavens, tore them open, 
and the Spirit comes. But how does He come? This is what is a little surprising at this point. Mark says the Spirit descended on Him like a dove. I mean, part of me wants to say, hey, wait, wait a second. Where's the presence that causes His, his adversaries and, and the nations to tremble? Where's the presence that kindles some kind of great wildfire that seems to be described in Isaiah 64, verse 1? And I say to you, we don't have time to develop this either. That will come in time. I think part of that will be fulfilled at the second coming when Jesus comes in judgment and fury. But at this moment, the heavens are torn open and God descends, but in the presence or in the likeness of a creature that no one here would ever fear. We think of doves and we think of gentleness or peace. We have a number of adjectives that might come to mind, but not one of them would evoke fear or um, put you ill at ease. The Spirit comes and rests on Jesus and I think this is a signal that Christ has come at this particular point to bring blessing and comfort and healing. You know, if your Bible is open to Isaiah 64, would you go back to Isaiah 61? That's page 620 in your text. Again, another prophecy that speaks of Messiah, Jesus, who would come. And you might say, why does the Spirit rest on Jesus like a dove? I think it's symbolic of this truth. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. You read that list of the kinds of people that Messiah has been anointed to serve and bless and minister to, and there are no rebels mentioned in this particular portion. These are the ones who are described with words like poor. And that might refer to something even beyond the economic poverty, to an affliction of soul that makes you, uh, that, that impoverish, impoverishes your heart. The brokenhearted, those who've experienced some kind of devastation or loss that leaves them in a condition they can't remedy. Captives are those who perhaps because of their sin or because of the community expectations and those external pressures just feel like they are perpetually in bondage. Those who are bound, Isaiah refers to. Those who just can't shake free of a life-dominating habit, who can't shake the past with all of its pain and frustration. Those whose hearts are so sorrowful that their attire would include not a normal hat that you might put on your head, but ashes as a sign of continuing mourning. 
Isaiah doesn't mention sackcloth, but sackcloth and ashes frequently went together in the Old Testament when people were sorrowing the death of a loved one, some other tragedy. But here, the ministry of Messiah is marked by blessing and comfort and healing and restoration. And the Spirit is the one who anoints Him for that kind of ministry. There is no doubt in my mind, beloved, that when the heavens are torn open and the Spirit of God descends upon the Christ like a dove, He is anointing Him in order that Isaiah 64 or 61 may be fulfilled, not just for that generation, but for every generation who has ever walked this planet. He anointed him in that powerful and tender way in order that you might be healed, in order that your brokenness might be repaired, in order that your life of, of spiritual poverty might be made whole and that you, might be, that you might be redeemed. Or as Isaiah says at the very end, that you who are faint in spirit would be called oaks of righteousness. Now there's all kinds of wood in the world but the oak is always recognized as a strong wood, a beautiful wood, a desirable wood. Over the last couple of weeks, we've just taken down some small pine trees. One of them was 35 years old. I felt badly. Seth and I cut it down a week ago and then counted the rings, but it was starting to grow over the wall of our, and, and fence of our backyard and made a mess on the sidewalk and People, students who walk up the sidewalk going to the nearby high school often have to, to dodge it. It just makes a mess, and so we took it down. So part of me felt badly, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's just kind of a scrub pine. It's not worth anything. And you know what? It's on the street today awaiting the uh, Sandy City collection that comes tomorrow. It's just pine. I would have felt even worse if it were oak. Because that's a valuable wood. It's a strong wood. And God says, I'm going to work in such a way through my chosen servant that you who feel like you have nothing would actually be oaks of righteousness. What kind of anointing is this? What kind of ministry are we about to witness as Jesus lives and moves and preaches and teaches and heals and exercises And this is the one who will baptize his people with the Holy Spirit. So remember this moment as we make our way through Mark's gospel because the Holy Spirit anointed him with power. Second big category I gave you just a few minutes ago. Jesus is approved by the Father affirmed, I, and I wrestle, and even then I don't feel like the, the term approval quite captures it, and I don't feel like the term affirmation or affirming quite captures it. There's something so much deeper and richer taking place. Look at verse 11 with me again in Mark's gospel. A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Now, there are two aspects of this affirmation that I believe God is speaking audibly, publicly, over the Son. And the first is that Jesus, as Son, is unique. It is true that there are other places in the Scripture where 
People like us who've been brought near through the, the forgiveness of our sins and salvation in Jesus are referred to as sons of God, and it's awesome. We sang again of that truth this morning. It's awesome to think that you might actually be a genuine heir of God's household. But son may be an appropriate term for you and me as redeemed ones, but it's not used in the same way that God the Father uses it of Jesus the Christ. He is identifying him as my son, the beloved one. My son, the beloved one. And that phrase distinguishes Jesus from all others and identifies him in this unique relationship. It's similar to John 1.14 where God had, uh, through or in the Holy Spirit, in, inspired John the Apostle to write of Jesus that he is the only begotten of God, that is the one-of-a-kind Son. I was so thrilled to see Hebrews 1 included in our uh, service order earlier, and Matt read the first five verses, and I actually want to go back to verse 5, pick that up, but read just a little bit beyond that. That's the portion of Scripture that asks this question, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? And obviously the answer is, there are no angels that Jesus ever referred to in that way. As a matter of fact, there's no other being in all the universe that God refers to in this way. Verse 6, again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. It's not only that no angel is, is designated by this title or this classification, but rather he says to those angels, you should worship him. And that's part of the point of Hebrews is that all of us should be worshipers of Jesus. We never worship other humankind, do we? Now that, That's a perversion of worship. We worship the one true God, and we worship His only Son, Jesus. Verse 7, of the angels, He says, He makes His angels winds and His ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, God the Father, referring to God the Son, calling Him God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your, com uh, your companions. And even here, we, we see that transitional thought moving from this approval of God into the pleasure of God. Look at Mark's text again. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. There's no other being in all the universe that God the Father delights in to the extent that he delights in Jesus the Son. Well pleased. That is, I, I take pleasure in you. I give you my full approval. And this is the affirmation of the Father from eternity past into eternity future. Again, it reminds us of Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, God Almighty says, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. And so this voice coming from heaven serves like a grand introduction. The Father speaking from heaven, not just for the benefit of of others who may hear that witness at that moment or those like us who read this witness 
centuries later, but for the blessing and affirmation of the Son himself, because God says, with you I am well pleased. He is speaking to the Son in very personal ways. So Jesus is beginning his ministry with the full anointing of God the Spirit and the perfect approval or affirmation of God the Father and all the healings that we are about to encounter as we read and study our way through Mark's gospel will bring the Father perfect delight. The sermons he is about to preach will bring the Father perfect joy. His victory over the devil's temptations that we will see in just a few minutes and his exorcisms of demonic powers will be the full and perfect pleasure of his Father. His agony in Gethsemane, the shame of his trial, the the suffering of his scourging will not only fulfill the Father's plan, but will be the Father's perfect delight. And in that future moment of sacrifice and death on Calvary's cross, Jesus will not only take the sins of the world on his sinless shoulders and soul, but will also be made sin for us in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And Jesus will have the perfect delight of his Father all the way through. I was thinking of that horrific moment when on the cross, the gospel writers describe for us that the Father forsook the Son, turned His back on Him, and that is because God the Father is of purer eyes than that He should look upon sin. But even in forsaking the Son, it is not that His delight in Him had been diluted or His love for Him had been diminished, but this is the Son who accomplishes everything the Father had purposed from eternity past. And so the Father's witness echoes across every part of that eternal existence of the Son. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So we read these things and realize that Jesus is not like any other prophet who has come before him. Jesus is not like any other priest who had taken that important role. Jesus is not like any other king. He's in a class by himself, anointed by the Spirit, and affirmed and approved by the Father, and that positions him for remarkable ministry. Look with me at the next verse in Mark 1 now. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. With that anointing and that approval, Jesus actually begins a ministry that is in its class, a class of its own. And he begins to demonstrate a kind of authority that we have never seen in all of Scripture. Now, Mark doesn't give great details about this 40 days in the wilderness. And again, if you compare it to some of the other Gospels, you will find that Jesus was fasting for these 40 days. You can go back to Matthew 3 and read the particulars of Satan's temptation. But what Mark does is to just touch on the specifics of what happened and then even use the particular name Satan, I think in a strategic way, because Satan is the name that designates the devil as adversary. That's what Satan means. And you know, Jesus would face this adversary all throughout his earthly ministry. 
Multiple times the devil would come to him, seeking to oppose him, seeking to overthrow him, and yet at every moment, Jesus was not merely triumphant as if he pulled out a last-second win, a surprising victory. He absolutely overthrows the adversary. In men's Bible study on Wednesday nights, we've been studying some of the early chapters of Genesis, and it's been a great blessing to us. Wednesday night is the last night, by the way. It's not too late. Some of you say, haven't been able to make it yet. Well, come. Come to our house Wednesday night, 7 o'clock. We're going to finish off chapter 3 or 4 and uh, maybe venture into chapter 5. Just depends on how much we end up talking about the Bible. But one of the things we've done in the last several weeks is to spend time in Genesis 3 looking at the fall of Adam and Eve and how Satan tempted them drew them away from God's good plan, his sovereign plan for them, and then as a result of the fall, the consequences that went into force. But right in the middle of that, in Genesis 3.15, there is a glorious truth. And it's actually God not speaking to Adam and Eve. He's actually speaking directly to the serpent, the devil, the adversary, Satan, and he's saying to him that from the woman... A special seed or child will come from the woman who one day will crush your head. And that's the moment you you can breathe again in Genesis 3 because you're looking at this just travesty, the catastrophe that's unfolded. Sin is in the world. Man and woman wrecked. Their relationship with God just seems to be broken and shattered. Their relationship with one another seems to be shattered. But here steps God in the middle of it, and he speaks this word of truth and hope, saying to the serpent, Uh, your head is going to be crushed. And then he talks about creating enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, that God's going to work in such a powerful way where the adversary himself is going to be opposed. Now, this is the first moment that we, if we go all the way back to Genesis, can say, this is the one. This is the one because no one else has been able to withstand the temptations of the devil the way Jesus did uh, in his life. And though he has not given the fatal blow to the serpent's head, uh, he just began to squeeze the serpent's head. Just began to lean in on him with his heel. And a day is going to come where Jesus will give the final crushing blow, and that will be at the cross. We'll get to that in time. What Mark tells us is that the Spirit was the one who led him into the wilderness. Now, again, this this is a whole study in and of itself, a whole sermon for you to think of. The Spirit leads him there to undergo this season of temptation, not simply to prove that he's more powerful than the devil, but do you know part of Christ's life is that he lived out the law of God, fulfilled all righteousness for you and me. He's doing at this moment what Adam could not do in the Garden of Eden. He's doing at this moment what you and I should do as those created by God in His image to be spiritual kings on earth. I mean, we should go to the war with with God's adversary and ours, unsheathe the, the sword of the Spirit, taking up the shield of faith, and deal Him death blows. But we do not accomplish those things, but Jesus does, and He's doing it for you. And that's partly what fulfills this part of the gospel and positions God to to make a declaration over your life and mine. You are righteous, though you and I are not perfectly righteous in ourselves. 
The theological term is imputation. To, to use a little more ordinary term, like most of us would talk, God credits your account and mine with the righteousness of Jesus. God credits your spiritual account with the victory of Christ over the adversary in the hour of temptation. Even though if, if you look at any one of our track records, it's just it's marked all along the way with failure, isn't it? I mean, we have moments where we can't go four hours, let alone 40 days. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit knew all of that. It's part of the reason the Spirit led him into the wilderness. Somebody had to do war with the adversary, and somebody had to win, and it's Jesus. One author writes, Jesus was our representative and obeyed for us where Adam had failed and disobeyed. We see this in the parallels between Jesus' temptation and the time of testing for Adam and Eve in the garden. It's also clearly reflected in Paul's writings or or discussion of the parallels between Adam and Christ. In Adam's disobedience and in Christ's obedience. Paul wrote in Romans 5, verses 18 and 19, as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, and he's speaking of Adam, so one man's act of righteousness leads to acquittal and life for all men. For by as one man's disobedience, again reference to Adam, many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, Christ, many will be made righteous. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Corinthians, or verse 45 and verses uh, verse 47, you'll see Paul referring to Christ as the last Adam. You'll read him speaking of Adam as the first man and Christ as the second man. Jesus had to be a man, this author writes, in order to be our representative and obey in our place. Do you know, even this week, when you face temptation and you blow it, part of the consolation for your soul and part of what ought to draw you back to God in repentance in confession, not excuse-making and denial, but rather just a humble acknowledgement, is that Jesus Christ, who is your representative, went into the wilderness and for 40 days warred with the devil and came out the victor. And his righteousness is your righteousness, even in the hour of your failure. This is why Mark says the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is good news that the king came and began to crush the head of the serpent. Lastly, look at verses 14 and 15. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So here he begins his ministry with authority over the great adversary, Satan, and he also begins his ministry with an authoritative message. He's preaching the gospel, proclaiming it, just voicing it abroad, and he will do it throughout the land of Israel. He will preach to both Jew and Gentile. He will preach to men and women and little children. He will proclaim this message. And how does that message begin? Look at verse 15. The time is fulfilled. 
Matt touched on this right before we worship the Lord with our offerings. There have been significant moments all through history, but this was the time God had appointed. And when all of the days were fulfilled and brought to this culminating point, here is Jesus, the Son of God, heralding a message. And what does that message include? The kingdom of God is at hand. The good news is that God himself has entered the world to declare his sovereign rule over all things. Now that's a big broad definition for the kingdom. But when we encounter that word or idea, whether it be the teaching of of Christ and the disciples specifically, or Mark making a reference to it, or anybody else bringing it up, your mind needs to think, first of all, that the kingdom is, is not primarily physical geography. It's not even an eschatological or future kingdom that's in view here. What he is actually preaching and proclaiming first is that the sovereignty of God is manifesting itself. He really is king of all. And the good news is that God himself has come to proclaim that message and then to demonstrate the reality of that message. But you know, you don't enter the kingdom by any other way than what Jesus says next. Repent and believe. You can't buy your way into the kingdom with generous gifts to the church or charitable organizations. You can't earn your way into the kingdom by good works, by trying to be the nicest person in the neighborhood by, by trying to you know, have the home that everybody wants to come to, whether it be kids who love to play. I mean, you can do all of that stuff, and, and that's helpful in society. It won't get you into the kingdom. The entry point is repentance and faith. Say, what, am, what is Jesus calling us to repent of? Our sins. John the Baptist was the forerunner. He was preaching the same message. You repent of your open rebellion against God or you repent even of the rebelliousness of indifference. It's just like, nah, nah, that God thing, not for me. Oh, my friend, he created you for personal relationship, but you live as if he doesn't exist. You are culpable before him. You need to repent of that before his judgment comes. Repentance and Belief. Jesus says believe. What are we supposed to believe? That he is the Christ, the Son of God. That his life, his death, his resurrection are the only ways by which you may be saved. Now Jesus is going to preach and, and actually show this message uh, in, in many other ways in the course of Mark's gospel. But I want you to think this morning here in this last moment before we pray, am I an individual who has repented and believed, who is repenting of my sin on this day and is believing at this moment? If you can answer affirmatively, then you are entering the kingdom. God would call you to submit your heart to Him, acknowledging that He is sovereign over all. He wants you to experience the power and presence of His dominion, but you must own your sin before Him. And you must turn away from that sin and turn to him in faith. It's quite remarkable news 
that the God who created us, who upholds us by his powerful word, as we were reminded earlier in the service, would enter our world and become one with us in that he took on human flesh, became a man for us, that he would be anointed by the Spirit, he would be affirmed by the Father, he would begin to wage war with our greatest adversary, Satan, and that he would proclaim a simple message of saying, do you want to enter my kingdom? Repent and believe. Oh, this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God.